This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Andrew Waters, and he has a new book about the American Revolution entitled To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Andrew, welcome back to the Journal. Thank you so much for having me, Walter. It's great to be back again. You are a conservationist. I want to talk a little bit about you before we get to the to the revolution. So how about filling us in? And, and rivers are a big concern of yours. That's exactly right. Um, I've been working in the conservation field since 2005. It was a second career for me, but that's um, what I consider my profession to be, a conservationist. Um, I uh, most recently worked at the Spartanburg Area Conservancy in Spartanburg, and now I'm working on a PhD in conservation policy at Clemson University. Um, so, yes, this the, the topic of this book was really um, kind of framed by my interest in rivers and conservation. Um, as I was doing the research for the book, I was really struck by the way that General Nathaniel Green who um, had, at the beginning of the book, has just been named the general of the the Southern Department of the Continental Army. So he's coming down to the south from the the northeast, and one of the first things he does is he commissions all of these expeditions to study the rivers of the Carolinas. Now, Green was doing this um, for logistical purposes. He had just finished up a stint as the quartermaster general of the Continental Army, and he, and he was very, um, you know, intellectually involved in figuring out how to move supplies and men. Uh, but he was also doing this for strategic purposes because, uh, in addition, he was by now a very experienced combat general, and he understood the strategic role um, that rivers could play in the American Revolution. And okay, let, let's stop right there okay. because th- that's part of your your first your first chapter. Yes, and I couldn't help but comparing that to the fact that Benjamin Lincoln did not use the rivers in his defense of Charleston. The rivers in the swamp of the Low Country were, you know, you couldn't you couldn't go a mile without having to cross something, and he he just ignored them. Yeah, I mean, that, I've, I've never considered that point, but that, that's certainly true. And I think one of the themes um, of the book, for me at least, in my head, is that um, Cornwallis never really considered the rivers kind of logistically or strategically the same way that Nathaniel Green did either. And when we're talking about the rivers in Carolina and South Carolina, there there are lots of rivers, but we're really talking about the Catawba River Valley, the big the biggest one. But we've also got the P.D. Yadkin. I mean, there because they all go up into North Carolina. Absolutely, and that for me was really the kind of the the intellectual spark for this book because. In my conservation career, I had actually worked in, in three of the river basins that kind of are involved in this narrative, in this part of the American Revolution. Um, I started my career working at the Catawba Lands Conservancy, which was in Charlotte and focused on the Catawba River. Um, then I moved up to a land conservancy in Salisbury that was focused on the Yadkin River. And then finally, when I moved to Spartanburg, I worked in the Broad River Basin, which played a role in um, the Battle of Cowpens, which is really where I start this part of the story. So my interest kind of in reverse order of the way that this campaign played out over time as far as how the rivers played a role. Okay, we've got Nathaniel Green coming to, to South Carolina after two military disasters affecting the Continentals, the, the Patriots as we'll call them. First of all, the fall of Charleston Benjamin Lincoln's horrible defense, one of the greatest disasters of the American army. And then Horatio Gates' stupidity. Uh, I'm sorry for that, but it it was. uh, The hero of Saratoga, as he was called, but we, we know Benedict Arnold really was the genius. He sent down here as a political general, ignores all local advice, force marches his troops through the Pine Barrens of the two Carolinas to Camden, and the poor guys have had green corn and molasses to eat, and so they're physically ill by the time they're thrown into battle at Camden. We're talking here about 1780. 
Yeah, the uh, the Battle of Cannon was in August of 1780, and really um, the Continental Army had kind of been in a in a state of stasis since then. Um, they knew that Gates was going to be relieved, and then uh, later on they found out that would be Green. So, so really, when Green arrives on the scene, the the impact and influence of you know the disaster at Camden was was still very much influencing the state of the army that he inherited from Gates so that's that's the setting for for where this story takes place not only is the continent or the continentals in disarray and disillusioned but certainly in North Carolina the partisans are are, are disillusioned as, as well Certainly, um, although quite a bit, as you know, had gone on since Camden um, with the partisans. You know, that was really when when Marion kind of um, organized his force and was um, starting to um, disrupt the British activity. And, and Sumter um, was very active during this period as well. And um, Green, you know, he really. He, he had a conflicted relationship with the partisans. He. He didn't truly trust them. He didn't feel they would be reliable, but he knew that he needed them. So um, when he came to um, take over the Continental Army, he, he started to cultivate these relationships that later played such an important role, particularly after the race to the dam when he comes back to South Carolina. But the, the partisan activity is also just, it, it just weaves through every strand of this narrative. Green is always trying to figure out how he can best use the partisans, how he can organize the partisans in his favor, sometimes with success as at Camden, um, sometimes without success as at um, Guilford Courthouse, um, when he realizes he needs to retreat across the Dan back into Virginia. So we've got this Quaker general in South Carolina trying to figure out how he is going to disrupt Cornwallis's plan to bring the South back into the British Empire. Yes, and it's quite a dilemma. He, he doesn't have as many troops as Cornwallis, they're not as well supplied. They've had a certain kind of breakdown in discipline and order since Camden. Um, and he realizes right away that um, he can't take uh, Cornwallis on kind of head on. Uh, and he makes a very interesting decision. He decides to split his force. Um, and I write about this in the book. This was this went against the conventions of kind of military protocol at the time. You were never— It, it, it still goes against the, pro- the military protocol. <laughs> First of all, his army was smaller than the, the foe, and then he divides it in half. Absolutely. He, he takes a very calculated risk. But the more I got into this material, you know, the more you kind of can see his logic and understand what he was doing. A, he needed to, to feed these guys, and he didn't feel like he could feed them all in one place. So that was part of his logic. But he knew that by sending Morgan to the West, and that's really where the story starts with Daniel Morgan taking this mobile part of his army, kind of the cream of his army, uh, to the western part of South Carolina. They, they camped at a place called Grindle Shoals on the Packlet River. He knew that that would threaten Cornwallis's western flank. And on, on his western flank was, of course, 96, which was very strategically important for the security of South Carolina. So I write in the book, I make an allusion to Green as the chess player. He's kind of moving his pieces around the board, not as part of uh, an offensive strategy, but as a, a strategy to disrupt the strategy of his opponent. Which he succeeds in doing. And by the way, uh, he often called his army that, that the flying army. That, that's, I was trying to think of that. Thank you. Yes. Yes. So we've got Daniel Morgan leading a portion of the Continentals with partisan allies uh, into western South Carolina. And, of course, then we have Calpens. This is really where the book picks up with the Battle of Calpens and, you know, really where if you— if you don't know about Daniel Morgan, um, read this book and you'll become a fan because he really 
was an extraordinary leader of men, extraordinary general. Um, he had kind of the common touch. He had the gift of the common touch. He could he could speak to the men in a way um, that they related to more so than Green. Green did not have that particular quality, but but Morgan really did. And Green had kind of authorized Morgan to to operate as he needed to. Um, he had authorized Morgan to to take offensive action or to to fight if he needed to, but he he really his orders stressed to Morgan the need to preserve the army. He he didn't want Morgan to threaten his army in some kind of um, military engagement. Um, but Morgan, because he was threatening ninety six, Cornwallis finally got fed up. Actually, there was an incident in a place called Hammond Store, that, which kind of caused a lot of concern among the loyalist um, contingency, and, and Cornwallis was reacting to that. Well, that's because the, uh, the partisans kind of took care of the loyalists at Hammond Store. Absolutely. Hammond Store is, is a little-known chapter of um, the American Revolution, but it was is a quite bloody one. It was uh, essentially a route by the uh, patriots over the loyalists. Okay. So Cornwallis's reaction is to send the booger bear of the revolution in South Carolina, Bannister Tarleton. Bloody Ban. Um, and Bloody Ban is quite uh, well supported. Uh, essentially, he has all of Cornwallis's um, light troops, his mounted troops, um, his his um, kind of ranger elements. And he says uh, he orders Tarleton to, to, to chase Morgan out of Western South Carolina to, to remove him as a threat from 96. And they had actually discussed a coordinated action against Morgan um, with Tarleton kind of pushing Morgan to the east and Cornwallis, where he was camped, I believe he was on a place called Turkey Creek at this time, coming up from the north and trying to, to trap Morgan in between them. Um, but because of just logistics and terrible communications, that plan didn't really work out. Morgan um, is retreating from Tarleton, uh, and he gets to this place uh, near the Broad River called Calpens, or Hannah's Calpens. At this time, he has quite a few partisans with him, and he knows that if he retreats across the Broad River, that all of these partisans are going to disperse. So he takes a look at the terrain at Calpens. He kind of looks at the assets that he has collected there. And he decides to turn and face the pursuing Tarleton at Cowpens. Andrew, why would why would why do you think the partisans would have filtered away if the, he had crossed the broad? Well, you're you're I'm sure you're more of an expert in this topic than I am. But my opinion on that is that the the partisans were uh, they you could organize them for an event if if you said you're you know, we're getting ready to fight the British, they would come. They would come and and they wanted to fight, but they weren't so interested in kind of the retreating or the campaigning. So if Morgan had crossed the river, uh, that would have essentially signaled to the partisans that Morgan was not interested in fighting. He was going to retreat. So they really wouldn't have much motivation um, to stay with him at that point. Well, that that was true throughout the war. Mm -hmm. uh, if Billy Hill's ironworks were threatened, they would they would gather, and then when it was over, they wanted to go back to their farms. Right. So we're we're there at Calpens, and by the way, it's one of my favorite battle scenes because the National Park Service has just done a terrific job with its interpretation. To me, one of the biggest ones is clearing what was a natural park landscape that had been created from the early 20th century, when most of that area was bare of trees and what have you. That's how Morgan knew the terrain. He literally could see the terrain. And until the Park Service began to clear away the trees, you could stand and you could, well, I can't see anything, but now you can. Y yes. I mean, that's that's part of the story and part of the genius of um, Daniel Morgan. He, he understood um, upon seeing the cowpens and, and kind of observing the topography there that he could really use that topography 
to his advantage. And what he did essentially was he put his his regular soldiers, his Continental Army, at the back of the formation and the third line of the formation. And, and they were hidden from Tarleton as Tarleton kind of um, entered onto this, this field or this plain. Um, he couldn't see the regular Continentals because of the basically the undulations of mm-hmm. the terrain. All he saw were the partisans who were kind of lined up um, in the front of the formation. And when Tarleton saw this, he kind of started licking his chops. <laughs> and Tarleton, although he was a, a uh, excellent officer, a, a, an excellent fighter, uh, he had a tell. He had a, a, a move that he resorted to time and time again, which was basically the the immediate charge, the immediate attack. He wanted to kind of overwhelm and terrify his opponents. Um, and indeed, uh, this is exactly what he did. He had been manipulated by Morgan in, into doing exactly this, and it proved his undoing in this battle. Yes, and as the partisans fired two rounds, that was what they were supposed to do, and then began to withdraw, looking like they were fleeing the battlefield. Tarleton sent his troops in, and then, lo and behold, there were the regulars, the Continentals behind that, and then was the cavalry coming in from the side in a perfect double envelopment. Uh, a battle, by the way, that's still studied at the Commanding General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, Morgan's trap had worked to perfection. Andrew, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Andrew Waters about his book, To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Andrew, back to the Battle of Cowpens, 700 British prisoners, all of the supply train. Uh, Tarleton literally escapes by the hair of his chinny chin. (laughs) He almost is captured. Uh, but then Morgan's got a problem. What is he going to do with all of this? Cornwallis, of course, is irate. He's lost 700 troops. Yeah, Morgan was very aware of the fact that that he was still in, in a lot of, of jeopardy. And uh, as you um, suggest, um, these prisoners were kind of, um, you know, these were valuable currency in the American Revolution. Um, these prisoners um, could be exchanged for American prisoners. And, and being the kind of the undermanned organization, um, these exchanges were very important to the Continental Army. And, and Morgan certainly understood that. He certainly understood that Cornwallis was nearby, um, that he was still threatened by Cornwallis. And he got out of Calpens just as soon as he possibly could. Now, this is, for me, this is one of the most interesting parts of the story. I had been reading about this, um, this part of the battle, and a lot of the information I was seeing said that Morgan forded the broad at, at the Cherokee Ford. And I just, because of this background as a conservationist, because I kind of understood the way the Broad River ran, I knew this didn't make sense. It says in um, Buchanan, John Buchanan, which is such an important book for all of this history that he crossed at Cherokee Ford. And this was a real puzzle for me. And I finally figured it out. Uh, and it's in the the Calpens history by a guy named Bruce Babbitts, um, which is really a wonderful book, that Morgan actually moved north at a place called Island Ford and moved to a place called um, Gilberttown, which is essentially outside of modern-day Rutherfordton, um, North Carolina. But this move um, really confused Cornwallis. Cornwallis also had assumed that Morgan would be moving east, and Cornwallis lost several days trying to find Morgan after the battle, which really was critical in Morgan being able to escape with his prisoners. Morgan is supposed to unite with Green, correct? Yes, he had sent word to Green about the the battle, and that was his ultimate goal, um, to move back east towards a unification um, with Green's army. But of course, they didn't have uh, modern communications, and there was a certain lag, and Morgan was really 
uh, evaluating um, different options at this time. One of the things um, Morgan wrote about this later in his life in a letter, he said, my plan was to see what Cornwallis was going to do and if he was going to pursue me to move into the mountains um, where he felt like he could either um, disperse his force or probably defend against Cornwallis better than on flatter land. But once he realized that Cornwallis had been delayed and was not a threat, he did start to move east towards the Catawba River, which I'm, I suspect we're getting ready to talk about next, yes. um, and, and managed to get across the Catawba River before Cornwallis could um, catch him there. But again, it was a close call. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things um, that I just think is so interesting about this part of the American Revolution. Really, if you include cowpens, there were four extremely close calls when really at any at any point the American army could have essentially been crippled um, to the point where it wouldn't be effective anymore. One was at Calpens. One was at Catawba, where the Americans managed to get across. And then at the Yadkin and the Dan um, is in later part of the story. Okay. So let's get Morgan and Green united and take the story from there. Okay. So Morgan had managed to get across the Catawba River. By this time, um, Green had, with a very small guard, just a handful of men, had ridden across the Carolinas, basically through a war zone, and he arrived at the Catawba at this point and kind of took command. A part of the story is that that Morgan had some terrible, was having terrible health issues. He had um, sciatica. It was very uncomfortable for him to ride. So Green kind of assumes command at this point. Um, And he starts to organize the defenses on the Catawba River. And again, this is one of the points in the story where he tries to organize the partisans in the region, really the militias of um, North of Rowan and Mecklenburg counties, um, to defend the Catawba River while Morgan and the Continental Army tried to escape up to Salisbury and, and try to get across the Yadkin. So the partisans, the militias, um, were able to delay um, the British from crossing at the Catawba. There was a, a, an engagement there called the Battle of Cowan's Ford, where essentially the partisans were, were shooting at the British as they tried to cross the river, um, and the British suffered, suffered several casualties there. The British get across the river. They, they managed to to kill William Davidson, who was the commander of the militia there, um, later the namesake of Davidson College. Right. And um, this kind of scattered the, the partisans. This kind of dispersed the partisans when their, when their leader was killed. Green actually was still in the area. He was still trying to organize partisans at this point. And I find this so fascinating because he really put himself at risk at this point in the campaign. He was at a local plantation where he had told the partisans to come join him there. They were going to try to delay Cornwallis even further. Kind of as the day goes on, he realizes that nobody's coming. He's essentially at this this farmhouse um, waiting there by himself. So kind of deep in the night, he sets off across Rowan County um, and rides into Salisbury. And there's this account of the surgeon, the continental surgeon, who kind of saw him that night at this tavern in Salisbury and, and could not believe that the leader of the, the Southern Department um, rode into town on his own um, in the middle of this kind of open um, battlefield. This whole area had become part of the, the campaign. So, again, um, Green really narrowly escapes at this point of the campaign. He makes it to Salisbury. They're they're able to get the Continental Army across the river, the Yadkin River. Um, And this is where Green's understanding um, of the rivers came into place because he knew that the Yadkin River would flood two days after a major rain, and it had actually rained on the day of Cowan's Ford. And he knew that the river would become unpassable, essentially unfordable by wagon or horse within this two-day period. So he, he rushed his army across. 
He collected all the boats on the other side of the Yadkin. And when the British pull up to the Yadkin River, they can see the Continental Army on the other side. The river's unfordable. There's no boats there for them to continue their pursuit. And they're just furious. They they bring up their cannon and they just open up this um, um, this cannonade that continues deep into the night. Well, you, you mentioned the rain and we talk about February 1781 uh, can be lousy weather. <laughs> And in the Carolinas, and it was lousy weather from now for the next six or eight weeks. In fact, by the time you get closer to Virginia, we have some. We're dealing with snow. Your description of Green's Army is really graphic. People talk, think about Valley Forge and and all of that, but these men were, in many cases, unshod. They didn't have boots. They were bleeding, literally. Their feet were bleeding or freezing. Uh, absolutely miserable. But Green kept them together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, as you said, there's there's a couple of accounts that I was able to use in the book of the the blood on the snow um, from from the men's bleeding feet, and it talks about how the the roads, when you woke up in the morning, they'd be covered in frost, covered in ice, and that would cut the men's feet. And then as the day progressed, the roads would turn to mud and they would have to trudge through the muddy roads um, with their their bloody feet. So, so yes, the, um, the endurance, the deprivation these men um, faced and, and conducted themselves with is really hard for us to understand from a modern perspective. But the the Americans, they had a few advantages. One, they they didn't really have any other options. You know, they were fighting for their own survival. So they were willing to endure. And the other advantage was they, I, I do believe that they were better led um, under the command of Nathaniel Green. He, he was just a very um, talented um, officer, a, a gifted general. He had his faults, um, but he was really, through his force of will and his kind of strategic insight, he was able to get these men to safety. Andrew, why is the Dan so crucial in all of this? Okay. The Dan River. Okay. For one reason, um, the Dan was um, the the crossing into Virginia. So that was important for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, it kind of signaled the evacuation of the Carolinas. And, and Green was, um, he was sympathetic to this point. He understood that by evacuating the Carolinas, um, the people who live there um, would consider that the, you know, they would think that the Continental Army was deserting them. Um, and he was very sensitive to that point. He tried to assure the officials um, that that was not the case, that this was going to be a temporary um, situation and he would, would soon be back. But, but he, he realized that he, he had no other strategic option, that, that Cornwallis um, it was uh, superior to him um, in troops and strength. So he needed to retreat. Um, the second reason was... Green was moving closer to his supply base. The Continental Army had magazines in Virginia. So Green knew that if he could get to Virginia, he could supply his troops more effectively than he could on the run in North Carolina. Cornwallis was moving further and further away from his supply base. So Essentially, Green was luring Cornwallis away from kind of his base, and that threatened Cornwallis's his strategic um, options. Well, of course, his supply base was South Carolina, but the British High Command throughout the war says, oh, we'll use the ports to supply the troops. Well, it's a pretty long distance from Wilmington, <laughs> and... Newburn into the interior where where we are now. Even even today, it takes a long time to drive on the interstate I-40 from the coast to to the mountains. So there wasn't any hope of Cornwallis getting any 
official supplies other than what he could get off the land. And we're dealing with February, so there's not a whole lot around. Absolutely. And so then when Green essentially pulled off the same trick again, um, when he was able to get across the Dan River, he had in his possession all of the boats. So um, there was really no way for for Cornwallis to get across, at least not expediently. Um, again, you just you the British were were frustrated. Um, they had been foiled. Um, they had chased the American army all of this way, all all across the Carolinas. Um, they had really kind of gambled um, the outcome of the campaign on this chase on being able to to catch Green and and crush him and destroy him, and they'd lost the gamble, and Green had won. And so Green is across the Dan River. He does get his his army resupplied, but Cornwallis turns around. Yeah, and that's that's kind of uh, where the the main action of of this book um, to the end of the world wraps up with with kind of the celebration in the camp of Green as they're um, as they um, realize that they've escaped the British army. But in the coda of the book, I do talk about kind of the next stage of the war and what happened. And this was when Cornwallis returns um, to Hillsborough and he erects his the, the standard of the British army and he, and he calls in the loyalists to the standard. And he had kind of all along, he had been assured that there was a strong base of loyalist support in this part of North Carolina, and he was really counting on this support to to kind of help him support his army at this point. And some came, at first some came, um, but really that support kind of dissipated um, pretty quickly, and Cornwallis again became frustrated that this kind of loyalist support that he had been uh, counting on, that his masters in London had kind of assured him would be there when he got to North Carolina, never really materialized. Well, it never really materialized in South Carolina either. They just, uh, but that's, that is another story. <laughs> so uh, we do have one more, ma- we do have a major engagement. Green and Cornwallis do face off on the battlefield. Yes, yeah, so all of this is is leading up to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which I believe um, was on March fifteenth, seventeen eighty one, and of course that's the the action that's that's better known um, as part of American history and history of the American Revolution. That was essentially a, a stalemate, um, probably a, a tactical victory for Cornwallis, but. But again, a strategic success perhaps for the Americans because Cornwallis, Cornwallis's casualties at Guilford Courthouse are so, so bad that he's really got no choice but to move down to Wilmington to one of those, those ports that you were talking about. And, and by this time, he'd had his uh, uh, full share of the Carolinas. He decided he'd, he'd try his chances in Virginia. Well, he... he... Well, several things. First of all, after Guilford Courthouse, several of his staff officers referred to it as a Pyrrhic victory, Mm -hmm. if it was a victory at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, Cornwallis replied to a friend who asked if he's going to come back to South Carolina, and he basically said, I've had enough adventures in the Carolinas. (laughs) (laughs) It, It had its moments, but overall, it wasn't much of a success. And so he goes from Wilmington he ends up in Virginia, Yorktown, and the revolution's over. Yes, and Green kind of missed out on that part of the revolution, and maybe that's part of the reason that we don't think about Nathaniel Green the way we think about George Washington and and some of the other Lafayette and some of the other American officers that were at Yorktown. And and Green really understood. Um, he he's you know he basically says you know. I beat the bushes and Washington got to catch the bird and he understood kind of the 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 strategic importance of what he had done in really running Cornwallis out of the Carolinas and he also understood that he would never get the accolades for that 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 Washington got at, and, and at Yorktown he, he didn't care his purpose was to preserve his army you know in in discussing green at 
Leavenworth and I taught out there as a visitor professor is, you know, he, the complaint was he never won a battle, but he never lost his army. In the end, he won. And his army, of course, when the British did leave Charleston, uh, the American, the Continentals uh, were there. Yes, Green is greatly underappreciated uh, in the general public. I don't think that's the case, though, with those who teach military history and, and, and strategy. Everybody loves cowpens, but everybody understands the importance of, of keeping that army together, because if it dissipated, as you mentioned, what if, one of those great what ifs we might want to talk about, we might not be sitting here today. We might have, first of all, started off with God save the queen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Andrew, we need to pause for a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Andrew Waters about his book, To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Andrew, before we move to that what if, in recent years, don't you really think Nathaniel Green has been rehabilitated? Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, um, certainly, you know, I discussed the John Buchanan book, and I think that was influential as part of that. Um, And uh, Mr. Buchanan's since written another book, The Road to Charleston. I really think that part of it is um, the publication of uh, Nathaniel Green's papers, which is in now in, I think it's a 13-volume series. And certainly, that was one of my major resources for writing To the End of the World and also my first book, The Quaker and the Gamecock. So I think having, having that material available has been influential in that as well. I still think that that Nathaniel Green um, deserves his own movie or you know television series or something like that. I think that would really tip the balance. But I do I do think that people are really starting to appreciate um, his role in the American Revolution. Well, in addition to the fact that he was he was you know he didn't win a major battle. People do remember Daniel Morgan, but he also died at a very young age. He died at forty three, and so he wasn't one of those Revolutionary War heroes that went on to say become a U.S. senator or governor or or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of the reason that his reputation has not kind of reached the status of some of the others. And and I I think um, that's very unfortunate because I do honestly believe uh, now Green came out of the war with a lot of debt. He had actually taken on a lot of debt to, to essentially feed his soldiers and kind of when the war ended, um, he had been promised reimbursement by the the Continental Congress, but he didn't really know if that would come through. So he he started a career as as a planter, as a farmer. Um, he kind of had turned down a couple of opportunities to to take a role in the in the new federal administration. But but I I truly believe that once this debt issue had been addressed, um, and if he had lived. I do believe he would have played an important part in the Washington administration because Washington trusted him implicitly, and um, he was essentially um, a son to Washington, in addition to the fact that he was just a a very gifted mind, a a gifted politician. I think if he had lived, um, he he would have enjoyed um, more of a place in American history than— and we can we can talk about a lot of what ifs. He actually was Washington's first choice to come down uh, after Lincoln lost Charleston. But Gates was a political general, and Congress said, "Oh no, you're going to have to take Gates." But then Washington did get his 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 wishes, his druthers, and Green came down to command the Southern Department. You also have a very interesting aside that historians have talked about from time to time, and that is the what if. Cornwallis had stayed in South Carolina, not been lured out by by Green. And yes, the partisans really did control the backcountry by the end of 1780, but the British line stretched from Georgetown all the way through, as you say, to Pensacola. I would carry it all the way through to Mobile. Mm -hmm. I mean, that British Florida. There wasn't much of a dent that the patriots could make in that. I mean, how are you going to evict the British from that. 
I do, I do find that fascinating to, to think about. I, I actually had more of that in the book, and the editor made me take some of that out um, because it is just, it's just speculation. But, I mean, I do think that this was, uh, if things had gone differently at this moment in history, if, the, if, the, if Cornwallis had not um, kind of chased Green across the Carolinas or maybe if he had turned back, then the American landscape probably would be different at this point in time. Well, there are tantalizing hints that after the first Battle of Camden and then Sumter's disaster at Fishing Creek, that American envoys were kind of putting out feelers in France about, uh, let's go to status quo or, you know, state, we'll take a stasis if, you know, they're willing to trade away South Carolina mm-hmm. and Georgia because mm-hmm. Georgia had already fallen. Mm-hmm. There's no concrete proof of that, but there are there are are glimmers, and yes, that would have had a dramatic change of American history, mm-hmm. certainly on the landscape of the American South. Certainly. Okay, this is your second book on the Revolution. What's your next project? Uh, my next project is writing a dissertation. I'm, I'm currently working on a PhD at Clemson University in the park in the Department of Parks and Recreation and Tourism Management there, and I just have felt so um, blessed to to be able to do that at this point in my life. So right now I'm really focusing on my academics. I do hope to be able to to come back to the American Revolution in the South. I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by this topic. And uh, I can't say there's a definite book in the works yet, but I've written two now, and I feel like I need to to make that three for it to be complete. I want to see another one on the shelf before it's all said and done. Well, in both of your books, the first being The Quaker and the Gamecock, and here you have Green and Cornwallis, you match up personalities which I found a fascinating way to approach. I also liked the idea of the chess player. Mm. Uh, I could have been tacky and said, who's going to take the queen's gambit the first, <laughs> <laughs> the first move? But uh, I forbore <laughs> doing that. But you, the way you presented your case of Green's purpose being not just to save his army, which is what I have always held and I think others have, but was to basically discombobulate Cornwallis. He played a psychological game, and it worked. Yes. You know, I'm not sure that was um, 100% what he intended, um, but I do believe that Green was extremely talented at um, kind of thinking about different contingencies in his mind and thinking about, well, if I do this, what, you know, he thought through these kind of situations and and how the pieces on the chessboard, if you will, um, would react to what he did. And Cornwallis, you know, I make this this metaphor in the book, um, he was really more of a gambler. He thought that if he made this bold move into North Carolina, or, or you know, maybe more fair to say that that he hoped, um, if he made this bold move into North Carolina and kind of destroyed Green and kind of awed the the Carolina countryside, um, that he could command the South and that would give him a strategic position to move up into Virginia and kind of um, trap Washington in the Northeast. Well, of course, the grand Southern strategy of the British High Command, Clinton, uh, Sir Henry Clinton and others, actually thought that might be what they would like to do. They mm-hmm. had Georgia, and they would roll up, and yes, at that point, they would say, hey, we've got the Southern colonies. These are the only ones that really count. This is where the wealth is. We'll let the war uh, end there. Now. I read your bibliography, your sources, and I, that's what we all of us historians do. And Cornwallis's superiors were very unhappy with him. Uh, he had his memoirs. Tarleton had his memoirs. Clinton had his memoirs. Uh, and they all three shoot at one another as to who, who was to blame for losing the American Revolution. Cornwallis, of course, came back in India 
And that might be a nice coda because you do know the rest of his story. Yeah, I, that's one of the reasons why um, I think it's, I wouldn't say easy, but it's easier to to research this period of history, the American Revolution, because it was an age when, you know, a gentleman was almost expected to to craft his memoirs, to kind of write down his experiences. Um, and a lot of the material um, for the book on both the British and the American side comes from, from these memoirs. As you said, Clinton and, and Tarleton, um, Cornwallis never published his memoirs, but we do have quite a bit of his correspondence from this period. You know, uh, this was a time when these kind of feuds were were played out in the press. And after the war, Clinton and Cornwallis kind of got into this petty argument, played out in the press over uh, whose fault it was, essentially, uh, what happened in, in South Carolina and in North Carolina and Yorktown. And, um, you know, it, it's, it was kind of petty, but it, it's, it's great source material for, for a historian of the American Revolution. And, of course... Tarleton went back to England a hero, became a member of parliament, and very influential because he was willing to take the Prince of Wales' mistress off his hands. Uh, Yes. (laughs) And he and his family made a lot of money in the African slave trade. That's correct. Yeah, I've... um, I've know a little bit about that. I've done some research on Tarleton. Cornwallis really felt betrayed by Tarleton's memoir. Um, you know, after Cowpens, Tarleton had kind of demanded a court-martial. Uh, he demanded that his actions um, be um, reviewed by a a court of his peers, and it, this really put a, um, Cornwallis in a bad situation. He knew that this court-martial would essentially remove one of his most talented officers from from this campaign. So he really went out of his way to kind of um, assure um, Tarleton and the rest of the British Army that he, you know, he didn't blame um, Tarleton for what happened at Cowpens, even though you know, everybody kind of knew that it was Tarleton's fault, but Cornwallis um, very graciously tried to, to let him off the hook. And, and then after the war, when Tarleton writes his own memoir and really lays the blame um, for the defeat in the South on Cornwallis, Cornwallis can't believe it. He, he can't believe that this guy that he tried to help and do so much for kind of turned his back on him. But Tarleton, um, in my opinion, is 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 a uh, you know, his account is not only um, very thorough and covers a lot of the ground of this campaign. I think he's a pretty good writer. I like reading Bannister Tarleton. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can you can go up to York County and then <laughs> uh, he was e- extremely effective. The attitude Tarleton had, and actually Cornwallis had it too. There's a, a basic disdain for the locals. They the British, particularly the English, uh, whether it was in America or Africa or Asia, an Englishman was superior to the local clods. And so one of Green's advantages was Cornwallis always underestimated him. Yeah, I think think you're right. I think... um as you said, there there was uh, very much a class consciousness in, particularly in the British Army. Cornwallis was was a peer of the realm. He was um, one of the major noblemen, uh, aristocrats in in the British society and culture. Very close to King George the Third himself. And I think Cornwallis did um, suffer from these class biases. I think he always did kind of underestimate um, the resolve of the Americans. Um, I think that that is an important part of the story. I'm going to suggest that uh, you carry the story on with Green after the race to the Dan and come back to really another crucial battle or certainly interesting battle at the Battle of Utah Springs. So uh, when you finish your dissertation and a few other things you've got on your plate, let's let's try that. Would you have me back if I do that, Walter? No guarantee. (laughs) I have to read it first. I don't have a guest on the show that, unless I read the product. I hate to tell you, but Alfred's giving us the wind-up sign, and so 
Andrew, any last words for our listeners today before we sign off? Well, I just I think this is such an interesting period of history, and I'm I'm no, you know, it's not everybody's thing, but I as 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 South Carolinians, I think it's. It's part of our heritage, our culture, our history to kind of understand what happened in the state um, during this this period of history, during the American Revolution. I think it 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 does have an influence on our society and our culture today, and in in a lot of different ways. So I hope that you familiarize yourself um, with the amazing uh, and rich history of the American Revolution that we have here in South Carolina. All right. Andrew Waters, author of To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. It was a pleasure, Walter. Anytime. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was fun having Andrew Waters back on the show, but even more enjoyable for me because the story of the American Revolution in South Carolina cannot be told enough. It's an important part, not just of our state's history, but of American history. And a new book like this, which presents an interesting facet of that story, I think it's one that needs to be shared because, folks, it is all part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.